HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Have you had that meaty, juicy burger made from plants? Does that sound impossible? If it does, this episode of Tech Bites is for you. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners. It is Thursday, March 2nd, in case you're listening in the future, which I know many of you do. It's a beautiful sunny day in New York City, out actually in Bushwick, Brooklyn, in the backyard of Roberta's Pizza. I'm Jennifer Leutzi. I'm the host of Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk to influencers and innovators in the food tech space. And today, one of those probably both an influencer and an innovator, is David Lee, who is from Impossible Foods. And if you have not heard the name Impossible Foods, you probably will coming up soon. They had a big press event yesterday at Bear Burger in Manhattan to talk about their Impossible Burger. Thanks for coming out, David. You actually come out from long way because you're San Francisco-based. We are based in San Francisco, but it's a pleasure to be with you. We're excited to talk about the burger. It's, it, is, it is exciting. I say that at the top of every show. I'm so excited. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> um, but they, the, the shows usually are. But we're going to start this episode before we get to the impossible burger, like we always do, going around the shipping container studio talking about apps. And today, the part of our engineer is being played by Vitor. Hello. Nice to have you back. Yeah, nice to do it again. So Vitor is here because David Tadasor, our typical engineer, and the rest of the Heritage Radio Network crew is currently on their way down to Charleston for the Wine and Food Festival down there. They're going to be broadcasting uh, a lot of good stuff from the festival over the weekend. So if you're down in Charleston and you're around the event, stop in and say hi. 
Victor, do you have an app that you like this week? Uh, yeah, actually, um, I've been using a lot of an app uh, for the meetup.com uh, website. And it's just a, a great way of, you know, getting together with people with similar interests. Um, and for me, it was great because I, I love playing soccer. And in the city, I kind of had a hard time finding a good game to join. And that really helped me just, you know, jump in on many games uh, every week and uh, find nice friends like that. So actually pretty, pretty easy to do because it's on your phone. You just... Uh, go really quickly and like sign up some games are very competitive like the spots go fast so um yeah that's what i've been using this week a lot that's a good discovery because i typically think of meetup more as a you know meeting tech startup yep. kind of businessy networking app i don't ever think about it as being for sports or other types of common interests yeah i actually have used that for also for you know tech stuff but then I just started looking for sports and uh, many things popped up and I joined some groups and it's great. It, you know, it has a bunch of different things in it. So where's the best soccer games in the city then? Well, where's I, the best I, pickup soccer? I live in Brooklyn, uh, North Brooklyn, so I, I usually go to McCarran Park to okay. play. But I recently found a really good game by the FDR uh, uh, next to the Williamsburg Bridge on the Manhattan side, uh, obviously. And uh, it's a great game. Uh, people are just nice and no fights, no nothing. No fights. Yeah, yeah that's a <laughs> that's big a, problem. That's a good recommendation, no fights. Yeah. No, <laughs> trust me, those games can get pretty heated. I'll bet soccer yeah. hooligans. Yeah. Famous. <laughs> Notorious, maybe is the better word. Yep. David, do you have an app that you like right now or maybe an old favorite that's been living on your home screen since you got your smartphone? You know, ever since I, I used to work at a company called Zynga, this uh, social mobile gaming company, and it's hard once you fall in love with a company to let go of the apps that you've helped bring into the world. So I have to tell you, I, I'm a big poker player, so I, I currently am in love with Zynga's poker game, this free non-gambling version of the game, to be fair. Uh, but uh, it, is, it is the thing that keeps me calm after a long day working on the Impossible Burger, uh, a throwback to my old tech days. Do you play poker in real life? I have to say I'm a terrible poker player, but I'm an avid lover of the game. Uh, it is, uh, it's other than cooking, uh, which also takes me to a different place. Poker and serving great food uh, are probably the only two things that, uh, other than family, that get me out of my own head uh, away from work. Sounds like you should be hosting a poker night. I, you know, like if a you'll, potluck poker night. If like you'll make come, some food, have people come over, play poker. Well, next time I'm in back here in town, uh, we'll serve Impossible Burgers, invite you and whomever else. That sounds else. like a great idea. I'd I, love to do it. I think I'm probably a terrible poker player also because I really actually never play. Um, but I would, I'm sure it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, it is a lot of fun. It's all about, I found that uh, while I'm terrible at the game, it's all about the person you're playing with or the people you're playing with, which is, uh, which is great. That's usually the case. Yeah. In yeah, anything. This is true. This is true. <laughs> well, the app that I'm going to call out was actually recommended to me by a Tech Bytes listener and Heritage Radio Network fellow co-host, Erin Fairbanks. She hosts The Farm Report. She told me about an app called Moment, uh, which I downloaded and took a look at. And it's pretty interesting. It is an app that tracks your phone use. How many times a day you pick it up, what type of apps you're using, which ones you use most, all that type of thing to give you a real sense of 
how much time you're actually spending with your phone and what you're spending your time on. And it's, if anybody's ever done, uh, uh, you know, sports training or, you know, gotten ready to go on a, on a diet of some kind. And one of the first things they ask you to do is to create a log, you know, write down everything that you ate or write down the times that you worked out and that kind of thing. It's almost like moment is creating a phone use log for you. And then it takes a look at it and you can, you know, sort of decide if you want to adjust your usage. It also has things like a 14 day boot camp where if you really want to change your phone use habits, but are maybe having a hard time uh, doing that on your own, it can help you do that. And while we talk so much about how technology is really a part of our lives 24 seven here on the show, we also do try to encourage, you know, wrangling that tech monster, sometimes completely disconnecting. And so we do like to call out things like moment, which uh, help us do that, especially now. I feel like now with all the uh, heavy news cycles and lots of social media that it's now is a really good time. Spring cleaning to mm. maybe give yourself a little bit of a refresh on how you use your phone. I so Moment, that. it's currently only available for Apple. There is a sign up on the website for Android and it is free. And if you search for it in the App Store, I will just warn you that there are a lot of apps called Moments with an S and they are all related to photos mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and capturing those moments. So this is Moment, no S. So on to um, the, the subject at hand. As we mentioned at the top of the show, David Lee is with a company called Impossible Foods. They started off in 2011, founded by a gentleman by the name of Pat Brown, who is an MD, PhD, biochemistry, you know, really science inventor type of guy. And he was interested in sort of making an impact in the environment and realized that one of the best ways to do that would be to create consumer support vis-a-vis really environmentally friendly and human-friendly delicious foods. So there was sort of born the idea of Impossible Foods. In 2016, they launched the Impossible Burger, which is entirely plant-based. It's chemical-free. It has a you know, basically about a 75 to 95% smaller environmental footprint than raising the beef equivalent. Um, and it made its debut at Momofuku Nishi um, last year and is now in a bunch of restaurants around town. And they were in New York today or, and yesterday to launch it at Bear Burger, the LaGuardia Place outlet. So one of the interesting things, I mean, there are so many interesting things about this, um, and we only have a limited period of time. And, and David and I spoke earlier in the week to kind of strategize how we could talk about all of this. So I think one of the, one of the things that we've talked about with a lot of uh, food tech entrepreneurs and something that we talk about in the restaurant and food world is that when you come up with a great product, and we can talk a little bit about the details of the Impossible Burger and how it is a great product, it's easy to make a great product on a small scale. You know, we were talking earlier just before the show, we're sitting in Roberta's and they make pizza and it's easy to make great pizza on a small scale, but Roberta's is really popular. So they had to figure out how to expand and how to scale that. And that meant opening a to-go shop down the street and adding another pizza oven. And that meant adding another pizza oven in the courtyard. And that meant adding a production facility at the Pfizer building for their to-go orders. So, you know... Impossible Burger is really at an interesting uh, 
crossroads right now because they've created a great product that chefs like, that consumers like. They're starting to let people know about it, but then how do you scale? How it's do you scale? It's a great question. You know, I, I think the, the thing about food, it's such an emotional experience. And, and we all have had those great experiences where something truly delicious and innovative comes to our plate. And, and then, you know, you begin to wonder, how quickly can I invite more and more people to experience it? At Impossible Foods... Or even just simply, I'd like to eat this again. Yeah. I'd like to have like a burger on Saturday night and like maybe have it again and again. So I think the first... Uh, piece of traction with food is personal. Me. I right. want to eat this more because I like it. Right. And and you want to eat it more personally and you want it to be safe and you want it to be consistent because it's such a pleasurable experience. So the big lesson we've learned is we've been around for, as you've mentioned, a little over five years, five and a half years or so. And And while we're so terribly eager to let the world try this Impossible Burger beyond the eight restaurants we're in, we're also extremely careful, almost plotting and patient with which chefs we pick um, and ensuring that we don't go beyond that flagship store, for example, in LaGuardia uh, with Bear Burger, uh, unless we know we can deliver the quality of the Impossible Burger uh, to, to the next store and the store beyond. We're actually in the middle of this multi-year process that we've been starting for some time on expanding supply. It turns out that... So Go when ahead. you expand supply, that means you're actually making more because right. because Impossible Burger is a product that you create, you know, in the kitchen laboratory, you know, industrial kitchen. It's not something like a beef burger where you're growing your inventory. So when you say you need to, you know, increase and expand your inventory, you need to actually make more. Which, That's right. So I mean, the way to think about it is. There are four major components of our product. Um, they're all natural and they exist in the plant world. The, the idea of making it, though, requires that we take these four major natural plant ingredients and we put it together in, in our process. And, you know, that's a traditional, real steel-in-the-ground uh, manufacturing process. So we've actually been underway quietly, and we'll talk more and more about this. We have a new facility actually in Oakland that we're going to commission uh, in, in a month and a half or so, where we're, we're really increasing our supply by an order of magnitude every 12 to 18 months. And the key was where you started, which is when we launched in July with Chef David Chang, we realized that there was so much demand for the idea of a product like ours that we quickly shifted to, well, how do we, in parallel, make sure that we're ready 6, 12, 18 months from down the road presuming we need at least 10 times more product, uh, which is what we've been trying to do for the last year and a half. One of the things about food also is you want people to have the desire to eat it again. But when they eat it again, it has to be as good as what they remember, if not better. Because if it's not as good as they remember, they likely won't come back. And again, whether you're a pizza restaurant or a, you know produced product, it's the same thing. If I have that impossible burger at Momofuku and it was amazing. And then I walk into Bear Burger to have it. If it's not as amazing, I'm probably not going to have it again. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's nothing worse than experiencing a great food dish for the first time and then having a chance to try it again and being disappointed. I think it's the reason why we're focused on partnering with chefs and great restaurants first. You know, a lot of other alternatives could have been for us to go directly to the consumer, you know, either in the grocery store for them to try it at home. But 
in the hands of a professional chef like Chef Chang or Tracy Desjardins in San Francisco or, or now EP at Bear Burger, we, we feel we're increasing the odds that the second, third, fourth, fifth time someone tries our product, that it's good. The other thing is what's great about a burger is it's so different. You know, at Momofuku Nishi, you're getting a burger that, that feels, tastes, is, is a different size uh, than the burger you'll get at Coxco in San Francisco with Chris Cosentino. So trying to provide that diversity was also an intent of, of how we're going to market. Well, I think chefs also have a, a very specific set of criteria. They have very specific set of consistency issues um, across the board. Um, and not to say that, you know, the eating public does not have, you know, a high level of standard, but chefs are kind of next level. And yeah. um, not only because it's business, but also to be a successful chef, you kind of have to be a little like maniacal and kind of crazy about the standards. Otherwise, yeah. you know, it's, it's easy to get lost. So they're kind of a crazy focus group to Dude, deal with. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, a, a, an incredibly rigorous, creative, passionate group of first customers for us. Um, and, and to your point, so, so incredibly different in their points of view about how to create a great dish. It's been amazing to, I mean, these, these, four or five chefs now that we've been serving um, share only in common the high bar they have. Right. Uh, but otherwise, they have very, very different, different points of view. So you are concerned about you know, maintaining quality and production scale. So you're having a very uh, thoughtful and cautious rollout. You're also creating limited supply, which is is that a byproduct of your plan or is that also intentional to create this sort of limited supply with a um, high profile group of chefs to create a little bit more demand for the public also? Yeah, you know, we debated whether we should wait, you know, build up more supply, wait till we have more of it before we begin to learn from the consumer. And and our, our founder, Pat Brown, and the team, we were really deliberate. We said, you know, we're going to learn so much more in letting consumers experience the product, giving us feedback, and frankly, understanding how much demand there is, uh, that we made the, the, uh, the difficult and it felt exciting at the time and scary in July to go ahead and put it in the hands, put it in the wild would be the way Pat Brown would describe it, uh, so that we could learn and get better. Um, and the, the excess demand for supply was a surprise. I mean, we, we had high hopes for the product. We did all the testing you could imagine someone would want to do, uh, and it looked quite promising. But you never really know until you see that reaction in a, in a restaurant. And so now we are faced with the problem you mentioned. We, we do have this um, movement that's beginning, and we're trying to catch up. Um, so while I say we're thoughtful and careful, we are. But against an absolute pace, that's remarkable. I mean, 10x the supply every every 12 to 18 months is the plan. Um, and we're trying to do it in a high-quality way, but we're, it's quite fast. That's aggressive. And that's, that's, very, that's maybe an aggressiveness that um, maybe only comes in from the sort of tech Silicon Valley startup world. I mean, there's a very specific mentality about, you know, prototype, go-to-market, you know, market validation and then scaling, um, which is almost just like a pro forma presentation, you know, for PowerPoint. Each yes. each stage has its own slide yes. until we get to, um, 
you the know, hockey market stick. success, <laughs> yes. and then usually the last slide is the exit strategy. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's interesting for me because um, you know we are backed by some of the most uh, you know preeminent tech investors. Yeah, and you also raised one hundred and eighty-two million dollars to date, one hundred and eight million being in your last round, and that is like food tech startup lotto. And and this, right there, this. This desire to make a difference fast and to innovate fast is a big part of our mission and our culture because otherwise we can't have an impact on the environment. But on the flip side, there's uh, complementing that what I call that healthy hubris of the innovator, which you see a lot in, in Silicon Valley. There's also the the mature reality of people who've been serving food. You know, I um, Pat and I had this long debate. Uh, I joined a little over a year ago. I'd spent eight years at Del Monte Foods, you know, uh, in in the trenches, if you will. Perhaps and, the antithesis to impossible foods yes, or the other end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum for sure. And, and you know, doing turnarounds in, in retail. And and the exciting thing for me is when I sat down with Pat and the team, the combination of that innovation, that science, that desire to have a huge impact fast. And at the same time, a, a recognition that there are some realities in, in serving a lot of people food that you got to know was this wonderful uh, two sides of the coin. Um, and I, I think so far it's helped both sides of the coin. Uh, but it's a challenge. There's no question. The going fast and doing it at scale uh, with quality is at the classic food question uh, for anyone who's tried to do it. It is the food question, whether you're a restaurant, a product, you know, or anything else. Um, it's what everybody's striving for on, on the day-to-day, and it, it, it's what makes, you know, a handful of restaurants, you know, rise to the top and be the places that we must go to. In in New York, in New York Metro, there are about 25,000 restaurants, but the ones that we talk about and want to go to is maybe a list of 200. Mm. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's people, the consumers are extremely particular. They're tough where they spend their money. They vote with their dollars. They're vocal about what they want and what they expect. Um, and if they're not satisfied... It's immediate. Yes, I mean this. It's immediate, and they walk away. They, there's also, and I would be curious to know if if you think that this has affected you, um, or has affected the Impossible Burger as a rollout, particularly in New York City, particularly, um, you know, even nationally and internationally, in that really competitive foodie culture, the person who's on top of all the openings and lists and the new things, there is a culture of. This place opened. I'm going to go. I'm going to wait in line for four hours. I'm going to eat there. I'm going to Instagram my picture, and I'm going to leave, and I'm going to say, yes, I went to that place. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, people lined up for the Impossible Burger at Nishi, and they went, and they had it. When I went, I was actually mesmerized by there was a table of four women huddled around the Impossible Burger that came out on like a little quarter sheet pan metal tray with some crinkle cut fries. And each one of them had maybe two digital cameras. Like they had the iPhone, they had the big camera, somebody was doing video, they were taking turns lighting, they were doing all of this. It was just, you know, it was like an extreme production (laughs) at the table next to us. I'd be willing to bet they didn't come back for it. Oh, it's interesting. It's we found um, actually the opposite, but but I think your broader question is super interesting. Which is one thing technology has definitely changed in the food industry that we've seen is that it's enabled this what I call radical transparency of the company. Meaning nowadays, instead of pushing 
uh, a launch, the idea of this is the new greatest burger, uh, and we're going to, as the authority figures, tell you that you should eat it. What we're finding is that consumer movements are created by those folks at those tables. Who Absolutely, because then people see it, and they'll come in, and they'll show their waiter the photo, and they'll say, yeah, I want this. Exactly, and and that social aspect of food where they discover it themselves uh, through social media, to your point, they self-publish their own food review of it, which inspires potentially others uh, you know, to try it even more and to be part of that uh, notion of of, of being part of something bigger than just what you're putting in your in your belly, I think that's the big idea. That the big idea we've we've seen is that if if we can help consumers feel that you know by eating hopefully a really delicious impossible burger, that they can almost feel like they're on the right side of history and, and they're proud to share it on social media. That that's a powerful idea. That's a grow. that's a pretty tall order for a burger putting you on the right side of history. <laughs> it's it's it is. I mean. That's it audacious. Is. It's audacious. You know, it's funny. Pat Brown, uh, this brilliant man who founded the company, he likes to say that you know we don't we won't know that we're successful unless our Im- impact can be seen from outer space. And he's literally uh, that's what he means. I mean, he, he, he means he means that literally, not he, figuratively. He, no, it's, yeah. it's not an analogy for something. No, and and he has all of the science to back it up. And and I'm I'm sure that uh, your listeners know much of this, but all, all the facts and figures about how we can really improve our environment by eating food is relatively clear. I think people have been, unfortunately, a bit in denial about it because they didn't have great choices that tasted good. Uh, And more and more now, uh, some of these innovators, hopefully like our own company, are bringing to the table, you know, great food that actually can deliver against something powerful uh, in the environment. Uh, That's the idea. And we're seeing it, we're seeing it not replayed to your point um, through our marketing work, but, but encouraged by us and then published by the people who try our product. It'll be interesting to see how many repeat customers you get because that's also one of the one of the it's like the gift and the curse of the hot new thing. People come, you know, restaurants get flooded for the first six months, and then once everybody's been, they leave. So yeah. once everybody's had it, great, I had it, I can talk about it, I can show you photos of it. But how many people are going to come back or make that their new go-to burger? I mean, that's that's the key. I I, I, I don't think you have any trouble with the first pass of experimentation or trying or the new thing, and you've created either intentionally or as a byproduct of your production, a a limited supply mentality around it, Hmm. which is also helpful. Um, But then I think you need to probably wait and see what the customer the, the repeat customer. Yeah, that you're, you're absolutely is. right. It, I mean, first, it, it is early days, right? And day two. Yeah, yeah day two. <laughs> day two in for LaGuardia, Bear Burger. Bear Burger, yeah. Um, Six months for Nishi. For Nishi. I, you're absolutely right. I think the key will be repeat. One of the, one of the thoughts that we have is if, if we can attract the meat eater um, and, and be provocative initially in being new and, and then, you know, even the brand we chose, right, the Impossible Burger. Uh, why is it impossible? So trial, trial kind of is initiated by that provocation. We're hoping in, in all of our work, we've seen that the repeat comes from what I call these um, more uh, clear fact-driven benefits. Like once they know it tastes good, you know, it has no cholesterol or trans fat. And, and, Come for the taste, stay yeah, for the environmental stay, impact. And, and, and also possibly because the, the product doesn't make you compromise as much for health, uh, which is we don't advertise that. That's not the definition of our positioning. That phase two. Yeah, but but that's um, I mean, and I got to credit Pat and and the team of scientists that spent six years developing this. They they really quietly and in stealth for the majority of those years 
waited until they felt they had a burger that you know tasted good, delivered on the environmental mission, but also didn't make you compromise too much on health. Um, so that's our hope on repeat. But you're right, we it's early days. Six, six months is far too soon to be able to predict the outcome, but we're hopeful. Well, we too are hopeful at Heritage Radio Network um, about having better things happening in the world. And one of those better things we hope to keep happening in the world is Heritage Radio Network. And we're going to take a little break to listen to who is the sponsor of this show. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. You may not know that. We're not traditional media. We are a .org, and we subsist entirely on our underwriters, sponsors, and members like you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes, the weekly radio show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk to influencers and innovators at the intersection of food and technology. And today we are talking with David Lee, who is the COO and the CFO of Impossible Foods, a food tech innovation company from California that created the Impossible Burger last year and just came to New York City to launch it at Bear Burger at their LaGuardia Place location yesterday. If you are interested in learning more about Impossible Foods, you can find them online at impossiblefoods.com. Follow them on Twitter at Impossible Foods or on Instagram at Impossible underscore foods. And if you want to... Uh, get down to Bear Burger and experience what we're talking about. It's B-A-R-E burger.com. Uh, you can find all the information there. I believe they also do delivery, which I can say from personal experience. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Bear Burger. I really like what they do. I like their product. They recently sort of did a, a refresh that made them interestingly more plant-focused for a burger restaurant. Um, and I, I do want to just sort of cycle back to the Impossible Burger itself. We're talking about it's actually something that you produce in a kitchen or a lab or a factory. It's not really something that's grown like animals. So it's a completely different production cycle. But when we talk about plant-based meat or dairy substitutes, David and I were talking about this earlier in the week there is a huge consumer point of view which says anything that's plant-based or vegetarian is healthy for me. 
it's healthy for me, it's good for me, and it's clean food. And while that is often the case, that is not always the case. <laughs> and I think, interestingly, um, last year there you know, was a couple of you know, health issues with some of the vegetarian products that are, you know, grown and, you know, they had issues with, you know, how things were grown and they became, you know, unhealthy and contaminated and things like that. So just because something is, you know, plant-based doesn't make it good. Um, just much like people say gluten-free is healthy, but if, you know, the first ingredient is sugar or there's still chemicals in it or, you know, something like that, then, then it's, we go back to, you know, the same litany. So I do want to talk about, go back to these like four ingredient groups, because it's actually kind of fascinating when you, when you see them laid out on the table, as they did at the event yesterday. I mean, you actually think about what the plant components are that are going into making something that really is a meat-like burger to the point that I have some friends who are vegetarian, who are absolutely not interested in this because it is too meat-like. <laughs> That's interesting, yeah. I mean, it's true um, to have impact on our mission, our focus really has been the heart of the market, which is the meat-eater. And, and candidly, it's what's going to fuel the business that allows us to achieve the mission. But you're right. The consumer's confused. Uh, and, and a part of that is how the food industry's operated. I was part of that industry, so I, I shoulder that burden as well. You know, the way we're trying to fix it is to be, again, this term radically transparent. So what you saw, the reason why we made it for the press is it's a pretty simple, natural set of four ingredients. And, and just to cover it for your audience, I mean, you know, we have this uh, protein from a wheat plant that um, we've been eating for a long time. Now, we're not taking a bushel of wheat out of the ground. That wouldn't be good for the environment. But it's a particular protein. And it gives the, the skeletal structure of the burger uh, that firms up as you cook it. There is a, a protein that comes from a potato plant. It's actually thrown away. I don't know if we covered this in the event. So it's one of those um, wasted type yeah, ingredients? It's, it's crazy. It's, Calling Dan Barber. <laughs> well, it is, it, it's, it's great in the sense that we weren't looking for byproducts, but we found a protein that people have been eating for a long time, but in the processing of potato starch, had been thrown away. And in this particular protein, when combined with the wheat protein, these other two, it, it allows the product to have some of its firming up uh, characteristic. It's also, there's a really nice um, sear of the product that uh, that comes on the exterior crust that comes from a combination of these ingredients. The third is, is what we call, uh, um, so, you know, we have this wheat protein, we have this potato protein, and then the third is this uh, product that's called a, it's called legume hemoglobin. And this takes a little bit of time to describe, you know, what, what you have in our product, our product's red when it's raw or impossible burger for the same molecule that makes red meat red. It's a molecule that's called heme, spelled H-E-M-E. -E. Well, we actually found it in uh, the root nodules of a plant. And like, um, like we described the wheat plant, we don't pull it out of the ground, but we use fermentation um, the same way that many Belgian beers are made, the same way that many cheeses are made. So that's how we can make this heme. And it turns out heme is really interesting. When you cook it with these other two ingredients and a few more, it produces these 
hard to predict aromatic flavors and smells that we think convey meat to the human, to the consumer. It's actually the same reason why our plant-based chicken tastes like chicken and our plant-based fish will taste like fish. I've not had the plant-based chicken. Yes. Yeah, so I've not the, had the plant-based fish either. Uh, we have to we have to at some point bring you in to, to let you try is the it, early is it prototypes. Anywhere, is it available anywhere in market right now? No. Our, um, ah. Yes. We, this we're, is more of that create limited product Well, no, it's more. It's, it's more. Limited edition. It's, it's more proceed cautiously and with quality. I mean, we're the the burger business is huge, and the impact on our mission is large. So we're trying to really focus on delivering a great Impossible Burger first. Uh, but the, some of the discovery of the burger relate to what's coming down the road. Anyway, the, the last, um, the fourth thing, the major ingredient is what gives this product its juiciness and fat. It's it's the reason why there's sizzle, and you know you see the fat come out of the product when you cook it, and it's it, this essence of coconut oil. Uh, again, natural and found in the plant world. It's interesting, though, where you started was fascinating when we were talking about this earlier this week. Just because you're labeled a certain way in no way implies, actually, that you're either good for your, your health or the environment. And I think some of the learning we've gone through in the last six years is we've leveraged a lot of third parties to really validate our own theories to test, you know, is this product truly going to be good for the environment? And is this product going to be accessible and affordable? We ended up making the choice to go for accessible and affordable and great for the environment and health. Um, and so one, one example is everything you eat in our product is natural and identical to what you find in nature. But we do modify a yeast for that fermentation. And so the method of production is innovative. Um, and, and, you know, as a result, uh, we think we have a product that can scale. Uh, but, but that was the thinking behind what goes in the product. The interesting thing and it's the, it, this is a topic for a completely other show, and you can attest to this working at Del Monte, most of the misconceptions in you know, the consumer marketplace, I think, come from two places. One is labeling on packaging, which is regulated, not regulated, Real terms, not real terms, meaningful, not meaningful, third-party vetted, seal of approval. I mean, the packaging and labeling system in the United States is extremely complex, kind of crazy, a little imaginary. And people go into the store and they reach for something and they think it's going to be good for them. And it's not always the case. Yeah, But certain words, adjectives, descriptions become synonymous with good and healthy mm -hmm. and plant-based and vegetarian, vegan, you know, those words are associated with environmentally friendly, healthy for me and clean. Mm -hmm. And as you know, we saw on the news, you know, last year for, and I don't want to, you know, name names and point the finger, but you know, a vegetarian product that was not actually clean and great. And you know, you see reports over and over again of, you know, vegan, you know, products that are have way too much sugar and way too much fat and way too much of these things, which are not good for your health either. So it's not easy necessarily moving forward, I think, you know, pioneering a new food product, but then being able to successfully communicate what the differentiators are, because the differentiator marketplace is just so scattered it is you're absolutely right i think i think you're spot on i think claims and labels have taken on 
almost a meaningless nature in the food industry because it's hard for the consumer to understand what's what's actually true. And um, one of the hopes we have is that a lot of these folks that are newer to um, this food innovation, the millennials that everyone talks about, they care more deeply about fundamentally what food says about who they are, but also what is it, uh, literally. Um, so our, our notion is that if we could be the most radically transparent new food company where we, we open our factories, we open our doors, you see on our website how the product's made, which is what we tried to demonstrate yesterday at the event, uh, and then we let the consumer with all the technology available to do research determine what's best for them, that that might be the the only way um, to, to, to be able to be clear uh, and fair. My guess would be that it's difficult for people to make that assessment, you know, in a very, within a very small footprint of restaurant menus. Mm. My guess would be that your clearest advantage of, you know, demarcation between your product and other products will actually be once you hit the supermarkets and the retail environment, which is three, four, five years out, perhaps, when they see the box of Impossible Burgers on the shelf or refrigerator case or frozen food case, wherever it's going to wind up, next to other products, when your box says no hormones, no antibiotics, no cholesterol, no artificial flavors, if the box next to it doesn't say that, mm. and if someone looks at the label and it doesn't say that, then they're going to be like, oh... This is great. Yeah, I think I think you could be right. I think also, if if the first time a consumer realizes that, for example, the Impossible Burger is made out of four natural ingredients and likes it, say, and and understands that there's an environmental benefit, and and then the second product that they try from Impossible Foods uh, has the same degree of benefit and clarity and simplicity, then hopefully over time, this will take a while, but hopefully over time, the company becomes known for the mission and the approach that we're seeking. And, and you know, I, I, am, a, I am a huge believer of, of great brands that, are, that deliver against something that the consumer cares about. In the end, what we're trying to do is be that great brand over time that's rooted in innovation uh, against our mission. Uh, so I think it is a long-term process, though. Uh, we're not, I'll put it this way, we're certainly not rushing to try to come up with some glossy claim or label to, to, to deal with this issue. We're going through the hard work and the long road of trying to be transparent, trying to be clear, and we hope that gets rewarded, but it'll take time. Well, especially if you're going, if your goal is to see, you know, global impact from space. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely something I think that, I mean, not being a scientist myself, but, you know, being a person who's alive in the world, um, would probably take at least a generation, if not two, um, to be able to impact and see that kind of change. Um, two quick things. We're, we're running out of time, um, and they're, they're not really related. But to the global impact that you can see from space and sort of the long-view mission of the company, when Pat was speaking yesterday about you know, his goal to sort of convert the millions and millions and millions of, of meat eaters around the world you know, sort of convert them to the Impossible Burger, these different plant-based alternatives. I, I have one or two friends who are vegetarian who have never eaten meat. Mm. And when he was saying that, I, I had a question pop into my mind, which was how many generations or how much time would it take to get to a place where 
people had never had meat. And yeah. their burger experience was just this. I it, mean, it's sort of a little like sci-fi. It's a little no, like, you know, Margaret Atwoody or something like that. It is great. But it, it is exactly also, what we talk about you know, all the time. <laughs> um, all the different, uh, you know, protein food substitutes and, you know. But I mean, that's sort of like a conceivable thing, not by intent, perhaps, as the mission of one company, but certainly as a potential outcome, you know, for the environment and the world in terms of. You know, we used to have this thing, you know, we, you can, we like Mad Max, right. Road Warrior, like everybody's around the fire, like, you know, we, we call them televisions. And, yeah, well, hopefully yeah. not Mad Max, but but we do we do imagine a world. Pat has said this so brilliantly, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to mess it up, but we would love to see, I think Pat said it this way, he said, you know, one day kids everywhere are going to uh, look up to their parents and say, are you kidding me? You're telling me that you and your grandparents used to eat delicious food made from animals why would you ever do that there's so there's stuff that's even better tasting that's made out of plants i actually i, I believe that's going to happen now the the question is of course how quickly um and and again this goes to the heart of our discussion which is we're impatient uh we want to go much faster than in a couple generations um but we also know that we have to build a high quality brand and and that's that's hard work because the first time you have some sort of disaster, or disappointment, or a glitch, then people, you know, that social media that's going to help you out and spread the word is going to be swift to persecute you. Yes. And swift to abandon you. Yes. Because it's a very fluid, impressionable world out there. I think you're right. And I have to say, I don't know a large, well-endorsed, at-scale food company that hasn't had an incident where real or not or just company anything that's yeah. dealing with the public let's that's just right. how about that that happens <laughs> it, it'll happen to any company that achieves uh, its future success so so we're, we're trying to prepare ourselves uh, for that as well so the last thought that i did have um and this is going to date me um there used to be a very famous, and you can find it online and it's one of the you know world's greatest commercials folgers instant coffee for the, the, the young people listening, Folgers Instant Coffee had a very famous series of commercials where they would secretly videotape people in very fancy restaurants having dinner. And at the end of their meal, they would order coffee, as you do. The waiter would serve them a cup of coffee, and they would drink it and enjoy it. And then a nice man in a suit would kind of creep up to their table and say, hey, how do you like that coffee? And the people would say, the coffee's amazing. And the guy in the suit would say you're drinking Folgers instant coffee crystals and everyone would go oh my gosh and then they would get punked <laughs> but the whole thing was like you know bait and switch for consumers to give them an instant coffee instead of a brewed coffee and how no one could tell the difference it was just amazing and people loved it I mean you know without going into liability issues and all that kind of stuff i mean how i mean that would be a very funny yes it would thing to do at like a burger place yeah you know what's funny is you know obviously like that beef burger that you ordered that's made from plants yeah it, get, and yeah can you believe that get yeah out of here. I, I i love the idea i mean we as impossible foods we obviously would never do that just cuz we want to be super right, transparent and today i don't know that you could get away with it because of you know liability and i didn't order this and i'm gluten intolerant and like but so I, many issues but, but i will tell the you the spirit this, of it is really compelling and i have a short story on this which is interesting you know um, a company that will remain unnamed a very large um, burger chain 
uh, with permission from uh, the participants. So I'm sure they didn't break any legal liability laws or anything. But they served their board of directors our product and didn't tell them it was it was plant based uh, in, in a ethical and legal way. And uh, that board of directors of this major burger chain, they were shocked. They couldn't believe it. They had they had a delicious burger. They thought it was juicy and wonderful. And then to be told it was all plant based and had all the benefits that we've talked about uh, was shocking. And and so there is something about context setting and expectation when you tell someone try this impossible burger, it's all made out of plants, and it, it might make you feel like you're making a difference on the environment. You do you do set up expectations to look for things that may not be there in terms of differences. I think it, we've decided as a, as a brand, though, we're going to take on that burden, we're going to take on that fight, um, because, again, it's, it's just so critical that people know what they're eating um, from our company. But I love the idea. You know, it would be so much fun. It would be hilarious. <laughs> I, unfortunately, I probably can never do it, but I would, love, I would love to see a reaction like that. Well, we are unfortunately out of time, um, which is sad because so much more to talk about, as is always the case. If you liked this show, you can go to heritageradionetwork.org and visit the Tech Bytes show page. We have 88 other episodes to share with you. If you want to get it to go, we have links to download it on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. You can subscribe to it on iTunes so you never miss it. If you really loved it and thought it was great and want to hear more, go to heritageradionetwork.org, click on the beating heart, make a donation. Now more than ever, communities for conversation and free press and the exchange of ideas about food and our food life and what's happening on our farms and school lunch are really important. We are a nonprofit. We are a .org. Maybe, you know, if you had a burger this week, send us what you spent on a burger or what you spent on a cup of coffee. If you designate your donation to Tech Bites, I will personally send you something special. Thank you on the air and give you my undying love forever. I'm Jennifer Liuzzi, and this is Tech Bites. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.